This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For over 25 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. How can governments deliver more effectively? What can government executives do to improve agency effectiveness and efficiency? And how can government executives develop a blueprint for improving agency performance? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Richard Spires, former senior government executive and author of the new book, Government Can Deliver, A Practitioner's Guide to Improving Agency Effectiveness and Efficiency. Richard, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be back, Michael. So what prompted you to write this book? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, for I, I entered the IRS in 2004. And to be honest with you, I still support agencies today as a consultant. And I'm dealing with some of the same issues that I dealt with, you know, almost 20 years ago now, right? And and the technology has changed a lot, right? How they deliver has changed a lot in some degree, but the the management challenges, um, the governance challenges, uh, agencies uh, making real progress on their effectiveness and efficiency, there hasn't much changed. And um, I feel like through myself and what I learned in working for two large agencies, the IRS and DHS, as well as talking to many others uh, about these issues over the years, I just wanted to get my thoughts down on paper so that it could be valuable to someone else. And that ended up turning into a book by the time I started thinking about how to structure it and what it would entail. And and it was a lot more than just an article. So that's why it turned into a book. It's a great book. Um, Can Government Deliver? You identify four categories and the combination of factors over these four categories where you see a lot of the problems for you know inefficiency and effectiveness of government. Can you identify them and tell us um, how you came up with these categories? Sure, of course. So, yeah, the, the four are – the first is about leadership, uh, but specifically about the tenure – and the expertise and the experience of the leaders. And let me, let me get into that just a little bit, and then we can explore it more. Yeah, one of the big problems in government, and this is well known, is that we have a lot of political appointees. And I'm not against political appointees. I actually was one. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is it's very, very different than in the private sector. So you have a lot of – this is this issue of tenure. You have a lot of turnover you don't have a lot of continuity. And frankly, a lot of the people that come into various roles from the outside, many times they don't have the expertise or the experience to sit in the role, especially when it comes to larger management challenges, okay? If you're a policy person and all of a sudden you're in charge of 10,000 people in a government organization, 
that causes problems. And I've seen that over and over and over again, Michael. So that that to me is is a whole set of challenges that are very different than what you see in the private sector. The next one has to do with uh, planning and resource alignment. And here's where you would really think government should do well. Yet I have found time and time again, working with agencies and talking to others that you know, everybody comes out with a nice strategic plan, a glossy document, but to make that reality and to actually deliver on those objectives and meet those goals, much, much more difficult than it, than it sounds. And that's where uh, a lot of agencies fall down. And we can, we can get into that as well, more detail. The third is um, really lack of ability to oversight, particularly larger programs. And I'm not just talking about IT programs, which is really my bailiwick, but any kind of program where you're trying to drive significant change and, and improvement in an agency. I have just found over and over again that the government agents, even though they do a lot of training and they profess all these things, that they want to be able to manage these effectively, over and over again, I have found that they struggle, many agencies. And then the last one, which affects every organization today, but particularly government agencies, is, is this issue of resilience and in particular security. Obviously, cybersecurity is a big, big issue today. But, but being resilient, being able to understand that um, there are going to be issues, whether they're cyber attacks, whether they're going to be physical issues, you know, you're dealing with uh, even storms and the like that can cause problems for government agencies, and be able to react appropriately and have the right resilience within, within the agency. So those are the four, if you will, problem categories. And how did I come up with those? Well, a lot of thinking about when I looked at weaknesses across agencies, they tended to fall into these kind of four major categories. And then when I talked to a lot of my mentors or others that I really, uh, or that have worked in government, that have dealt with these kinds of issues, you know, kind of reflected on these and it really drew consensus that, yeah, these these are the four major problem categories that agencies deal with. Interesting. So I like to stick with one of them and particularly dive a little deeper around leadership and tenure and continuity. Mm -hmm. How do you see these particular factors of tenure and continuity differ amongst the private sector and government agencies? What are the implications of this difference and what can be done to kind of bridge the gap here? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is one of the key areas that I think agencies need to improve on. So let's let's reflect a little on the on the private sector. I did some research around this, and so if you look at, at private uh, run companies, the average length of service of the CEO is seven point two years, over seven years. Compare that, contrast that to what you would see at a typical government agency, and I'm not just talking at the federal level. Think about it at the state level. You know, and even at the even at the local levels, like with mayors and the like, and city managers, you're going to see a, a lot shorter tenures, right? Where there's even, I hate to say it, but in many government agencies, even two, three year kind of tenures. So you've got a lot of churn right at the top. And the other thing about the private sector is it's it's not that it's unheard of to bring in a CEO from the outside to a company, but that's usually in a situation where the company is struggling. Normally, you're trying to groom from within. So you're taking someone who's got the right experience, who knows the organization very well, and you're elevating that individual up to the CEO role after they have spent probably years, sometimes decades with that same organization. So the continuity there is very strong, typically. Again, you don't have that in the tops of many of the government agencies. 
And so you really have this conundrum on how do you drive real sustained positive change in agencies when you've got the very top leadership always changing out. And, and, I, and I had this experience of having seen it at the IRS where there's only two political appointees, okay? There's only two, okay? The chief counsel, well, obviously the commissioner of the IRS and then the chief counsel. But at DHS, where I also was at, there's 286. So it was really interesting to see the contrast, okay? And not that the IRS hasn't had some real issues, but I'll tell you, from a management perspective, I think they did a much, much better job overall than what I saw generally at DHS. Mm-hmm. Be- and, and, and it's not that I have anything against the career executives at DHS, but it was that churn at the top of those 286 individuals that are politicals that are, that are changing out all the time. So how do you fix this, right? Well, look, I, I, you know, I talk about being practical. I talk about being a practitioner. So I'm not naive enough to think that I can go to Congress and say, you guys got just way too many political appointees. You got to change all that. That's not going to happen. But what can happen is that if you can really focus on the political appointees and do a couple things. One, try to be better about, particularly in the management roles, get people that really understand management, okay? It's unfair to bring a policy person in who doesn't have a large management background and put them in charge of a, of a larger organization in government. It just doesn't work well. I've seen it time and time again fail. And a lot of times they don't like it and they end up leaving after a couple of years. So that's, that's number one. Try to do better um, about picking the, the head of agency, working to pick those under them that, that really fit the role better. And the other thing is, and your organization, or the I should say the IBM Center, uh, the Partnership for Public Service, these other organizations, I think you should step up more in, in helping, if you will, train or helping guide new political appointees mm-hmm. about what government's like, how do you get things done in government, you know, Actually, I'm hoping my book can be of some aid to, to new political appointees. You know, it's different. It is fundamentally different in some ways than being in the private sector. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you, you need to have some help when you come in as a political appointee. So you, you dedicate a chapter, which is very helpful in terms of practical insights that's offered on resiliency and security. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, given the, the leadership tenure continuity gap and yes. what you just described – Maybe that leads to this, but why do agencies sometimes in government sort of flounder when a crisis yeah. comes up? Yeah. Well, what was your perspective on that? I, well, part of it is, to your point, uh, tying the link between the experience of those at the top, right? Um, but I would say there's a couple other things that I've seen um, where agencies, uh, they, 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 they claim they, they worry about resiliency and cybersecurity, but do they really address it in a fulsome way? And I have found typically no. And I think it's really, really important that the governance model you have in place not only address the normal things about, you know, the oversight of where the money, you know, where you're investing your money, uh, the programs, delivering new capabilities, but that same governance, you know, set of bodies needs to look at the resilience, whether it be at an enterprise level for the, the organization or portfolios, you know, the resilience of a portfolio and striking that right balance. I mean, you need to invest, right, in resilience. You know, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. 
You need to, to really call it out. And you need to have the right executives within the organization striking that balance about how much do we invest in new functionality to deliver to the citizen or whatever it is they're, they're doing as an agency, and how much do we need to invest in resiliency and security. There's always a tension there, right? There is always a tension. But I think if you do this right, you can have an informed discussion and decision process about where the right balance is. And I think many government agencies I've seen do not strike the right balance. They are not investing properly in resilience. What can government do to attract the right people and build a pipeline for the future now? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, with Richard Spires, author of Government Can Deliver, a practitioner's guide to improving agency effectiveness and efficiency. As I was reading your book, uh, Government Can Deliver, it was curious to me, but it was important, I thought, that you put the first function you talk about is everything starts with the people, the employees. Why is that the case? As, as I talk about in the book, you can have great plans, you can, you can have a great governance model to be able to make, quote, good decisions, but if you don't have the individuals in key roles with experience and expertise, you're still going to have a lot of issues in the execution. You're going to have an awful lot of issues. So, and, and you know what, Michael, you can't just outsource all that. I mean, a lot of government agencies just talk about having to buy talent. And yes, you can buy a lot of talent, and, and you do in many government agencies, but you can't, you can't just outsource it all. And key decisions um, that uh, government, inherently governmental decisions, um, you need to have the right talent. And I, I keep coming back to the theme throughout the book. And, um, you know, it, there's no magic bullet here, though, either, right? I mean, we'll talk probably about what, how do you address some of this. But the fact of the matter is that agencies need to invest. They need to invest in their employees and, uh, and help develop them, okay, to feed or to, to um, fill, rather, these key roles uh, within the organization. And there's no getting around that. And, but, but I also think, and, you know, I talk about a transformation plan over about four years if you really do this right over a four-year period, you can make tremendous progress on the talent side. 
both in recruiting the right kind of people and then developing the, the individuals that you already have on board. Well, you know, your subtitle of your book is A Practitioner's Guide to Improving Agency Effectiveness and Efficiency. And one thing I loved about how you structured the book, Richard, was you actually provide really practical insights, attributes you identify them as. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could stay on the people, mm -hmm. the people function, sure. and talk about some of the key attributes you've identified for establishing that function so that you have the right talent as an agency leader and you're able to tackle some of the major problems you're dealing with. Let's explore that. So let's go back to these key roles. Um, obviously, some roles in an organization, any kind of organization, are much more important, quote, are more, more important than others. So identifying these key roles and then really looking and understanding what are called the KSAs, okay? What are the knowledge, the skills, and abilities that you ideally want to have in an individual filling that role, okay? And you need to define those, and, and they, they need to be well-defined, because if you have that, then you can look at, okay, what are the what we what I would call learning paths, okay, that you can put individuals through to get them to the point where they can effectively fill that role, all right? And, and this can be at a project manager level, program manager, running you know, a large part of the organization, or it could be as an individual contributor that's delivering something key to the to key to the agency. So it, it's not just management, okay? It's not just management. But if you if you've done the job to to define those KSAs for the position and then the learning paths, then you're then you can get down to an individual level where you're looking at a, you know a particular individual, what is their career aspirations, helping them put a career development plan. I, I love to see agencies put uh, individual development plans in place where, you know, over the next three to five years, what is it that I'm going to do, okay, to invest in myself working at this agency to be able to aspire to one of these key roles, okay? So that's why I say over this kind of four-year planning horizon, if you really work to do this, um, you, can, you can make tremendous progress, okay? On, on changing the culture and, and really filling these roles, a lot of these roles that, that are key roles in the agency with individuals that have these KSAs or are close to, I mean, we're not, perf we're not looking for perfection here, right? Um, but the individuals that are well on their path to being able to, to fill a role, a key role in an organization, an agency very, very well makes a huge difference. And I specifically talk about it, about program management in, in, in developing that pipeline of talent, okay? Because you, you can't change it on a dime. It's going to take a number of years. But over that four-year period, you can build a cadre of individuals that can fill these, these program management roles. And not, not just the PM themselves, but that fill out an office, okay, for a program management office that can really transform how an agency can deliver its programs and its projects. That's terrific. And, you know, it leads into my next question. It's getting your perspective, mm -hmm. both your time at IRS, your time at DHS, and now in your consulting role. Um, I want to know, what can the federal government do to attract the right people mm -hmm. and, and build that pipeline you talk about in your book uh, for the future, but now? Yes. Yeah, I I still don't get it. I. I loved my time in government service. You know, I spent eight years in federal government, and you know, it was the most meaningful work I ever did in my career. And uh, and that sense of mission—it's not going to capture everybody. 
but I just don't think that government agencies play up enough the mission aspect of this and trying to attract. I, I'll give you a specific example, and I, it's a vignette in the book, which I thought was a very powerful one. So um, I got to know uh, the chief counsel, you know, the, the top attorney at the IRS pretty well. And, and he and I were talking one day and he explained to me, he goes, you know, that we attract, if you want to be a tax attorney in this country, there's men, there's a couple of different routes, but one of the, one of the most popular routes is you come out of a top law school and you come to the IRS and go, wow, that's something. You can attract the very top talent. He goes, if you want to be a top tax attorney, you come to the IRS, you, you, you tend to do three or four years. I mean, some of them are so captured by the mission, they'll stay for a career, but you know, 90% will not. They'll go on to a, you know, a, a lucrative career in, in the private sector, you know, in major law, law firms, those kinds of things as a tax attorney. But think of the benefit to the country of, of that talent pool, right? Not only is it helping the IRS for those three or four or five years the individual is there, but then they're going out into the field, they're representing clients, but they understand how the IRS works, right? They understand how the, how tax attorneys in the IRS do their job. And so what a benefit. I mean, it's, it's kind of an ecosystem, and, and I think a very positive ecosystem. Why can't we work to replicate that model, right? I mean, I think we should work to replicate that model in many different areas and say, hey, come to the government for the first four or five years of your career. Get tremendous experience, the scale, some of the complexities of, of what you're dealing with. You know, the, your chance to influence and impact society is so much bigger than, than in many, almost anywhere else you can go coming out. And I just don't think we sell that well enough in government. I think, that, I think we really could. We could have a campaign around how to attract the best and brightest in the government, and we should. Yeah, that's a great point. So from transitioning, Richard, from the people, the foundation, the function, to um, the other aspect you talk about, which I thought was essential, is good governance. Yes. And I'm hoping you could tell us, you know, maybe talk a little bit about good governance, why it's so important. But mainly, what are the benefits beyond good decision-making? Does good governance happen? What are some of those benefits you can share with us? Well, let, let me say that uh, good decision-making is the key first thing. For how, why, do you, why do you need good governance? Because it will really, if you do it right, it will help overall agency decision-making. And we can explore that. But before we go into that, I, I, I do want to pick up on your point, which is we really worked hard to overhaul the governance model at the IRS when I got there because it just was not, I mean, the interactions between, for instance, the IT organization and the business units of the IRS just wasn't really where it needed to be. Um, yet, IT was essential for any everything done in the IRS, right? So we really worked hard to overhaul that and come up with a governance model that could really help um, what I call get alignment. And, and it's so important in government. Too many times I see agencies within the agency, you see executives kind of at cross purposes with each other, okay? You know, what Executive A is trying to do really doesn't match at all with what Executive B really wants to do, but, but they have to work well in order to really make progress. So this idea of bringing people together, um, and having governance boards that have specific oversight 
and are empowered. It's really, really critical they be empowered to make critical decisions for the organization around their sphere of influence, or their sphere of responsibility, I should say, is so critical. And it, if it's done right, it drives alignment. Okay. So let's say we're talking at a portfolio level. And I, I want to define that quickly because agencies, most government agencies are really large beasts. Okay. When you compare the size of them, even the smaller federal ones are still large compared to 99% of, of uh, private sector corporations. So they, there's a lot of complexity with that scale. Okay. And a lot of times they have multiple mission elements. And so this idea of you can't do everything at, out of the front office. You can't do everything as, at the enterprise level. You've got to be able to effectively delegate. And I saw that in spades in, in DHS where they weren't doing that effectively. I mean, we had a governance board, our investment review board, that literally was trying to oversight 120 major programs. Impossible. Just impossible. Right? It doesn't make any sense. So what I was driving first at the IRS and then working to do it at DHS was this idea of let's define these portfolios, okay? You know, it's obviously very different depending on the agency. I mean, functionally within the IRS, you, we could all understand submission processing being a portfolio. That's how we, you know, that's the, the mechanism by which the IRS receives uh, tax returns from us or other information from us. As one example, you'd have a portfolio around uh, auditing, right? Or we, we called it compliance internally, but essentially auditing. So that's a different function. So group all the executives that have everything to do with submission processing, for instance, and have them oversight, if you will, that whole portfolio, everything to do with submission processing. And that way you start to delegate, okay, the commissioner can delegate to these different portfolios and the executives running these portfolios, those responsibilities, and you get all of the right stakeholders involved. So obviously the IT organization needs to be very involved with submission processing because, you know, whether it be receiving paper and having to deal with systems that deal with that paper or whether it be all electronic, there's a lot of IT elements. So you get the IT executives, the right ones involved, you get the right uh, mission and business owners involved. You have people from privacy. You have people from the general counsel involved. And you're working together, okay? You're, you're making, if you will, it's, it's not like we all have this, you know, a vote necessarily, but by bringing these people together and understanding the issues around submission processing, if you will, you get alignment. You get everybody to understand, these executives to understand the issues make collective decisions about the priorities for, for submission processing. Where are we going to invest our money? Where are the programs that are going to have to be spun off, new programs or projects in order to support submission processing? This drives alignment that makes a huge difference. I mean, I've seen it time and time again, Michael, it makes a huge difference on how a, uh, an agency can operate and drive real goodness. Richard, you mentioned alignment a couple of times, a number of times in the book, and, and, and one particular area is around planning, which is the next. We've yeah. done people, yes. uh, governance, good decision-making, planning, yeah. um, strategic planning to be specific. But I'm wondering, Richard, why, from your perspective and your expertise, why do government agencies struggle with doing planning well? And perhaps you could outline for us some of the key attributes of doing it effectively. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and it picks up well right off of, of governance. And if you look at the structure of the book, I cover people, then governance, and then, then strategic planning. So as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, um, you know, agencies do a great job of putting out nice, glossy documents. Now, maybe they're nice, glossy PDFs uh, of their strategic plans, right? Uh, and they look nice, and they read well, and they've got all these great goals and objectives. But how does that translate into a project on the ground and what they're really doing? And, and this is, again, where I find huge disconnects in agencies. So let's pick up on this idea of the portfolios, okay? If you've got a, a good governance function around the portfolio, you've got the right executive stakeholders that are meeting regularly on a particular portfolio. We can continue to use our example of submission processing in the IRS. Then they're in a good position to say, okay, Let's, let's imagine what we could do three years from now, four years from now. What's that look like, right? Yeah. What's that look like? And so they're actually then feeding up, here's, here's our ideal of where we want to go with submission processing into the planning process all the way up to the strategy, okay, at the, at the total IRS level. Um, and then it feeds back down, and, okay? So at, at an executive level, at the, at the enterprise level at the IRS, Based on what submission processing wants to do, of course, they're just one of the demand functions. There's, you know, in IRS, we had to find about a dozen different portfolios. They're all got requests, right? But they're requests based on real plans at that level, okay? That here's where we imagine we want to go with submission processing over the next three years. That's coming from all these other portfolios. Now, at the enterprise level, at ultimately the commissioner level, you know, where do we and and of course they got to get budgets approved as well through OMB and ultimately on the hill but where is it that we want to go okay and where do we want to put more resources so they're going to have to make those tough decisions at the enterprise level but once submission processing has if you will for let's say the next year their budget then they can go back and look at okay we have a 3 year vision of where we want to go we've got this much money for next year how are we going to allocate those, okay? How are we going to allocate those dollars, those budgets, out to our programs, out to our systems that, that comprise our portfolio of submission processing? Um, and, and so, and how are we going to allocate the requirements then that we want met, okay, by these programs or projects within submission processing? And so you've got this line of sight from, from the top strategy all the way down to projects and programs and what they're actually delivering on. And then you report back up as you execute, right? All the way back up to the enterprise on how you're actually doing. And you can get into this virtuous cycle every year. It makes planning a lot easier because once you've done this once, come next year, we're going to move out another year, of course. Okay, we're, you know, our three-year view, we're going to move that out a year. We're going to revisit what did we actually accomplish this year? You know, how well did we do against what we hope to do? We're going we're gonna to do that planning process, but we're going to be more in streamlined. And I've seen, we did at the IRS, where over a four-year period, we got very good about being able to, to incrementally get those, each one of those portfolios updated and, and get the enterprise architecture updated based on the plans that we had. It was very virtuous and uh, made a huge difference in how we could drive modernization across the IRS. What can government executives do to improve agency effectiveness and efficiency? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. 
How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, with Richard Spires, author of Government Can Deliver, a practitioner's guide to improving agency effectiveness and efficiency. So, you know, we talked about people, we talked about governance, good decision-making, we talked about planning. But none of this is possible. Like, you can't invest in the right people, you can't get, without a budget. (laughs) So I'd like to transition into, I don't know if you could share a little bit about some of the issues around budgeting in the federal context. I don't know if you could just give us, even if it's a high level. Well, I just, you know, I talk a bit of, in the book about this, this, this problem that many agencies face, and I call it incremental budgeting, which is what they do because they don't have good planning in place, in my view, is they, they take last year's budget. You know, everybody asks, every organization in the agency asks for, you know, 5% plus up or whatever it is. They all ask for it, right? And, you know, and, and then at the top, you know, they submit a budget to OMB, they get passed back and, you know, and they go through this rigmarole, but are they really focused on the right things? Because they're incrementally budging off of what they've always been doing. And so, you know, again, if you've got good planning in place and you're really, really looking at, we've got a new strategic plan you know, how is it we're going to really meet these objectives and what needs to change and what programs do we need to stand up or are the programs delivering the right things right now to really meet those objectives? And if you really start looking at it through that lens, it will start driving. And by the way, these governance boards, in my view, they're the ones putting forward up to the enterprise level budgets, okay, at a program level, at a portfolio level. They're feeding these budget requests up as part of the budgeting process so that at an enterprise level, you can make good decisions about where do you want to invest the money, okay? And, and I think that can transform. Again, I've seen it happen. I've seen much improved budgeting after you get good planning in place. And I was wondering if you could share with us some of the lessons you've learned um, federal in your federal service around procurement and acquisition and perhaps you could share with us some of the insights or key attributes you, you've identified for doing it well. Yes. And let me separate two types of procurement. Sure. I have always found that uh, government agencies buy commodity stuff pretty well. Mm-hmm. I mean, stuff that's easy to, you know, easy to buy and that they can easily benchmark pricing on and the like, they, they do well there. It's when you get into more complex things that government agencies tend to, tend to struggle. And... I, and I, and I, I talk about this in the book. I, 
something is not right about a way a lot of the procurement organizations interact with other and of course my examples are IT examples where I lived this but it, it but it permeates not just IT but let's take an example where you know if if I'm running an IT program okay and I'm having to buy a lot of stuff and typically I do right whether it be you know software licenses or today cloud services or whatever it may be I've going to have to buy a lot of stuff you know I need to rely on procurement to help me do that okay and I, I really feel like uh, many agencies don't have the model quite right about pulling together and having true integrated program and project teams where that procurement, that, you know, that contracting officer, he or she is running those procurements on, on the behalf of that program really is part of that team and is incentivized to make sure that that program does well. Uh, and, and I get... And, and, I, and I understand there's got to be a balance that, you know, there's all these small business contracting goals and you, you and, and right. And, and you got to be fair in all this. And I get all those rules, but ultimately that contracting officer needs to deliver for that program. Okay. And too often, I hate to, I'm being a little critical here of the way this structured, but too often that is not, okay, the incentive model. Okay, that needs to be in place. And it's not just for procurement people, it's for anybody associated with a program. If you're trying to drive real change in an agency, programs have to deliver. I mean, there's just no getting around it. You, if, if you want more than the status quo of whatever you got today, you got to have programs and projects deliver to be able to affect change. And, and to me, agencies need to step up and really, really focus on making sure that programs have everything they need to be able to deliver successfully. And that means you need an integrated program team and that those procurement officials need to, to be part of it. Now, a lot more goes into it, right? Um, uh, good requirements have to be defined for what you're buying uh, for complex programs. But you know, this issue of timeliness is, is a huge problem. For, and I talk about this in the book. I mean, you know, in the private sector, you know, there's no timelessness issues. I mean, you know, <laughs> we got to get it done now. In, in government, with all these rules and and all these things that can happen, um, I get they're not going. You're never going to be as timely in government as you can be in the private sector. But my goodness, if the incentive structure was shifted so that COs really were incentivized to make sure that programs were successful, I think you could see a real shift in the way these procurements are run the timeliness of these procurements, um, and I think it could really, really help agencies. Mm -hmm. You know, in what you just shared, you mentioned the term program management. Yes. And I'd like to delve a little deeper in some of the vignettes you share about your time at IRS and DHS, but but could you, for our audience, sort of give us a high-level overview of what program management is and how does it differ from project yeah, management? Yeah, sure. Sure, of course. So, so programs are actually, um, there are differences. Programs are actually a um, bringing together a set of projects, okay? Pro each individual project's got a specific thing it's going to deliver. It could be a product, it could be a service, whatever it is, but it's a unique delivery. But a program brings together projects, and the reason you have a program is because there's synergy between these projects, okay? If they're independent of each other, no reason to have a program. But if they come together 
And typically in, in government, because of the complexity of the scale, okay, you do have programs, all right? And so you've got individual projects being executed within a program, and a lot of times they depend on each other. So the output of one project very well could be an input for another project to be able to deliver effectively. So you got to manage these things together. And so the skills to run a program are akin to, but if you will, somewhat different than running a project. Now, typically the way it works is that your project manager, or maybe you're even a task manager first, then a project manager, and then ultimately, you, if you have the skill sets, you become a, a program manager. And sometimes program managers are running very, very large programs, right? In government, it's not unusual to have multi-million dollar or even hundreds of millions of dollars programs, right? And so these become very, very critical to deliver effectively. So hopefully that gives you a little bit oh, of a that's sense. That's a good, good point because it goes to my next question, yeah. which is around perhaps you could share with us some of your experiences in both your, te- your two your IRS at DHS mm-hmm. around um, the, the – what did you learn about doing program management effectively yeah. in those two stints? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is, as I keep coming back to, to drive real tra- change, running programs effectively is one of the most important things an agency can do. So what what what's the problem? Well, yeah. frankly – now we come back to talent, right? Full circle. We need people and in a program management office, not just the program manager him or herself, although that's a really, really key role, but we need the right people around that program manager with the right skills and abilities. Okay. So in in my world of IT, of course, you know, it's individuals that understand, okay, how to deliver IT infrastructure. It's individuals that understand how to deliver IT applications if they need to be custom built. In today's world, of course, a lot of it, hopefully we're buying more and more software as a service. You know, it's not so much custom development anymore. There's still a lot of configuration, a lot of integration. How do you test all this effectively? How do you deploy all this effectively? These are real skill sets. Um, and, and you can learn these skill sets, but it takes years and years. And And I talk in the book about the fact that Many government agencies try to outsource a lot of this, okay? And if it's a, if it's a well-contained program, okay, um, and my example is a lot of weapon systems programs in, the, in DOD, if it's self-contained and there's not too many interfaces with other, other systems within DOD, probably some, but not a large number, then you can run that thing as an outsourced program, and many times you do, and that's fine. Contrast that to what I walked into the IRS when I took over business systems modernization. They had literally hundreds of legacy systems that we were trying to connect these new applications that were being built to. Very, very complex. And we used to joke that the work to actually connect the legacy was was more difficult and more work than the actual functionality of the new application itself. Probably an overstatement but not too much of an overstatement. And so you can't have a situation where you can outsource that effectively because you've got all these legacy that you've got to interact with and you've got individuals that are running this legacy and you can't disenfranchise these people. I mean, and that's what was happening at the IRS when I was the, when I arrived, these people were disenfranchised. They had no buy-in to the modernization initiatives. They didn't want them to succeed because they viewed it as threatening their jobs. 
right? It was completely a backward model that would never work. And so we had to dismantle that model. And in fact, one of the things I got the CIO to agree to was we actually reorganized the whole CIO shop and we put together under the portfolios, like submission processing. We had a submission processing division within IT that had not only the legacy submission processing applications, but the new modernized ones that were being built all into one organization, okay? Because we needed to be able to incentivize all these people maintaining this legacy to be part of modernization. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. Took a number of years to start to work, but it fundamentally changed the way in which the IRS went about modernization. How can government executives develop a blueprint for improving agency performance? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, with Richard Spires, author of Government Can Deliver, a practitioner's guide to improving agency effectiveness and efficiency. Your last chapter before you get to the transformation plan mm-hmm. and some great insights on how to do what you're suggesting mm-hmm. is around resiliency or resilience and security. Um can you tell us a little bit more why you pick that? Like, yeah. yeah. And then I'd like to get into some of the key attributes right. you offer. Yeah. Because, yeah, when I thought about it, you know, of course, coming from more of an IT background, you immediately think of, well, just security, cybersecurity, right? But then when I really thought about what are agencies dealing with, it, it's really a resiliency problem where it's, you know, and, and, and I talk about in the chapter that, and the, the subheading is, you know, a bad day will happen. I mean, you, you, I don't care how good you are, you know, bad days are going to happen and things are going to happen. And, and working on your resiliency, and, and I talk about three real attributes of resiliency being, you know, uh, obviously when you're in the firefight, the bad day has happened. How do you react? Okay, that's certainly part of it. But how do you plan to react, right? Being ready to react. But then there's another element of resiliency that I don't think agencies spend nearly a time enough and invest in, and that's how do I mitigate mm-hmm. many of the things, bad things that could happen to me before they happen? Mm-hmm. And not just cybersecurity, but all kinds of things, you know, um, bad things that can happen. You know, and really thinking through that and using your governance function again and making that part of your planning function, right? That, you know, we're, we're not going to, we're going to invest in, New capabilities, of course, and, and service to the citizen, improving that. But we're also going to invest in being more resilient, okay? And obviously, it's specific to the agency. But you know, we're going to invest in that, and we're, and we're going to meaningfully deal with that. And we're going to be – that's part and parcel of our planning exercise. And it's part and parcel of 
of, of the key decisions that our governance bodies are going to make about how much to invest in resiliency versus how much to invest in new capabilities. And, and when you talk about re- resiliency, you're talking about you're going beyond like continuity of operations. You're, you're kind of baking it in to the plan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's not, oh, yeah, yeah. It's not a sideline. Not a sideline. No. Yeah. That's my point is it's got to be integral for how the agencies run. Because again, the bad day will happen and you want to really minimize what happens to you on that bad day. And then you want to be able to respond very effectively to that bad day. Yeah. Yeah. So um, perhaps I could ask this before, maybe I was remiss in not asking it earlier, but um, before I get into some advice around the transformational plan that you have in here, um, could you tell us more about yourself? And your your career path, your career path. Yeah, sure. I I spent uh, I'm, well. I'm an engineer by training. Not too surprised by that. But um, but I uh, I spent 20 plus years in the private sector. Now some of that was serving government, so they were some government contracting. But I did. I worked uh, also in uh, supporting firms up on Wall Street, uh, some major telecommunications firms, uh, all IT related kind of stuff. But that's where I really I I think uh, got my chops. Um, in, in doing project and program management. And I was running some quite large programs. Um, uh, and then I was attracted into the IRS. Um, uh, they asked me to come in to take over the business systems modernization program. And it was interesting, uh, Michael, because I really didn't have, even though I had some done some government contracting, it wasn't on my career plans to go into government, really. But um, the chance to come in, this is this draw thing again, you know, the chance to come in and deal with the scale and scope of the IRS and this modernization program, which at the time was billed as one of the most complex IT modernization programs under ever undertaken, was just, it was just, I, I said, I have to do this. I have to do this. And so I came into the IRS, I, as I mentioned, I I did that for a couple of years and then uh, was asked to, to become the, uh, the CIO of the IRS. And then ultimately, before I left, I was actually the deputy commissioner for operations support. So I had all the chiefs. I had the CIO, I had the IT, I had the CFO, I had all these chiefs then reporting to me. Um, although I would say I, I, sometimes there's jobs you probably shouldn't take. I, I think I was actually, I, I think it was more effective as the CIO than I was as deputy commissioner. Which is kind of interesting, right? Well, you know, it's I, I, you know, my real chops are in the IT and being able to run large-scale IT operations, and um, so I, it, it wasn't that I regretted taking that job, but I, I actually think I was more effective as the CIO. That's great. Yeah. Well, one, uh, the last part of the conversation I want to I want to spend is around the transformation plan you outline, and what advice, Richard, would you give an agency leader in developing a transformation plan? as a blueprint, as you call it, mm-hmm. for improving government performance. Yeah. Well, you know, just so people understand, that transformation plan is really built on the rest of the book, meaning, it, you know, we talked about the attributes. So there's there's eight solution functions, and we, you know, we essentially went through those, like uh, the people function and governance and program management like. But then within those solution functions, I define these attributes, right? And there's 68 of them, as it turns out that I define throughout the book. So it's, uh, you know, it seems daunting, right? But the transformation plan, a couple of points about it. One, you know, the element of time. So I, I really focus in the book and I, you know, I, I talk about the fact that if you're coming in as a leader, let's say you're coming in as a political to run an agency or in a very key role in an agency, you know, if you can stick around for four years, I really highly advise it. 
because not only do you want to drive real change, but then you want to institutionalize that change. And that's a theme in the book we haven't talked about yet, which is this notion that you know, um, agencies can revert. You know, even though it's goodness for them, um, they can revert. And so something that an improvement you make that is good for the agency, you want to make sure that it gets into the policy and you want to make sure that it gets into the procedures on how things are done. And so that the next leader that comes in, he or she, that's the way the agency now runs, right? Because I've seen agencies revert. And you know, and all the way back to when we started this discussion, why is it that agencies are still dealing with the exact same management challenges that they were when I, 20 years later? Because they revert, you know? Progress is made, but with such change at the top, right? It's not, inst- the, you know, the goodness is not institutionalized. So I... I urge leaders coming in, if you can try to stay for four years so that you can make some real positive change and then you can institutionalize that change so it becomes the way the agency now operates, that's how you can leave a legacy. So that's number one. Number two, if you're really near the top of the agency and you're driving change, and we talked about this, um, really work on that governance function, really work on that planning function, improve those because that is real goodness that will last and will make a difference well beyond your tenure there. Okay. If you can plan, the, if you can improve the planning and drive that planning down through so it really impacts what are the programs doing, okay, to, to really help the agency. What are those projects doing? You know, how do you make decisions so that you're really investing that your funds in the best way to really drive the change you want to see. Those are really, really goodness. And then a couple other points I would make. I talk in the book about setting up, and you can call it what you will, but you know, two, two um, tiger teams, if you want to call them that, for lack of a better team. One, um, a program support organization, because you know, I talked about the fact that many programs in government struggle. We just don't have the talent we need across these agencies to effectively run these programs. Um, And so how do you deal with that? Well, get yourself some experts. And here you can buy some outside help too, okay? But a small team that, you know, is not about a compliance organization. But if a program needs help getting started, this is when you don't want them to go into the ditch within the first uh, month or two of starting, right? You, You need to start well with the right people on board, or if a program starts to run into problems, okay, a program support organization is there not to find fault. You know, they'll, they'll look at the program and see where they need to shore it up. But, but the whole orientation is about helping the program to succeed, right? Very, very important. And, and, and so many things like the IGs and GAO, I hate to say it, you know, they say they want to help. But it looks awfully negative when the reports come out, right? So I really want to turn on the positive here. Help the program get back to running effectively so it can deliver what it needs to deliver for the agency. And then on the operations side, you know, I I have this whole idea of of this tiger team of experts, right, that that know how to, to look at an operation, processes, systems, and how to improve those, both incrementally and then also some, you know, some digital experts to help. How do you really digitally transform processes within government? And you know, if you can identify some of these, that then feeds back into the planning process, right? Right? Doesn't it? I mean, 
you know, hey, we can digitally transform this process. And here's, and then uh, let's feed this back in, get the right portfolio looking at it. How, how are we going to do that? What program does, will it be done under? Or do we need to establish a new program? And, you know, th- th- so it, again, it's virtuous, okay? So, um, you know, get this operations team, okay, this ex- set of experts. And it doesn't need to be a lot of people, right? It really doesn't. That's what's the beauty of this. Um, you know, this, this program support organization, this operations improvement teams, they don't need to be large, okay? If they have, you know, even a half a dozen people, maybe with a little contractor support for even the pretty large organization, large agencies, I've seen things magic can happen. You know, when I end the book that way, I have seen magic happen in government. You know, and, and, and it, it, it is not rocket science here, but it is, you know, but, but it is not simple either, right? I mean, 68 good attributes is not simple. And not that you have to have every one of them implemented, but you need the key things in place across these eight functions, these eight solutions I talk about in order for this virtual cycle to happen, okay? And you need some time, okay? You need that, that four years to, like, time period to really make some difference. Richard, how can folks get a copy of the book? Well, I mean, government can deliver. I mean, if you put that in and you, you have major uh, online booksellers like uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble are carrying the book now, um, I've got it available um, in a hardcover or paperback or even in an ebook edition. So I, I, I'm trying to make it uh, available to, to everybody. And I, I really hope it's going to be available to, I mean, I hope government leaders want it and those government employees. But also those, I, I really would hope that, um, you know, those that are teaching academia, mm-hmm. okay, that it could be hopefully a guidebook for them as well. Um, I, I really think it could be valuable for, for students of uh, public administration. Absolutely. Kind of I also think it's very practical for folks who are, who are serving government in terms of con- contractors. Oh, good point. You know, yes. it just, it gives them a sense of what they're dealing with. Yes. Yeah, um, you know not. your client better. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So this was wonderful. Richard, thanks for coming in today and joining me. Well, well thank you, Michael. And thank you to the center for in, for inviting me. This has been wonderful, wonderful discussion. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Richard Spires, author of the new book, Government Can Deliver, a practitioner's guide to improving agency effectiveness and efficiency. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.